This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we look at two historic trials in different countries and different eras. We begin with Greece, where the extraordinary trial of the neo-Nazi party Golden Dawn has just ended after five and a half years. Golden Dawn was at one point the third largest political party in Greece, and it is known for its violence and intimidation against its opponents immigrants, and LGBTQ communities. The top leadership of the fascist Golden Dawn has now been tried, convicted, and sentenced to prison. Attorney Thanasis Campayanis is one of the lawyers who pursued this case, and he joins us with journalist and analyst Kevin Ovenden to explain the world-historic significance of that trial and of Golden Dawn, a criminal organization that operated under the guise of being a democratically elected party. We then turn to historian John Wiener for a look at the Chicago 8 and then Chicago 7 conspiracy trial that riveted the world in 1969, lasting five months. The Chicago conspiracy trial brought together yippies, anti-war activists, and Black Panthers to face conspiracy charges following massive protest at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. Aaron Sorkin has just released his new film on Netflix called The Trial of the Chicago 7. And John Wiener's 2006 book, Conspiracy in the Streets, The Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago 7, has been reissued to coincide with the Sorkin film. We'll talk about the film and the actual history of the trial, noting the significance of that moment in history for our own. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Greece has been at the top of our attention for more than a decade. It was the country that first, you know, was to respond to the austerity that crippled the economy in the aftermath of the economic crash of 2007 and 8 with militant general strikes and mass mobilizations. Indeed, it was an inspiration to so many of us. Syntagma Square was synonymous with Tahrir Square, the Indignados, Occupy, and other manifestations of demonstrations against the status quo. Famously, Greece was governed by a left-wing coalition, Syriza, that the EU chose to batter until it succumbed to the Troika's demands that led to immense immiseration of the population. And today, Greece is once again in the forefront of our attention, this time by an extraordinary trial of the neo-Nazi party Golden Dawn that has gripped the nation, and that trial has lasted more than five years. Golden Dawn, founded in 1980, shot to prominence at the start of the economic crisis more than a decade ago, and was at one point Greece's third largest party. It is responsible for a years-long campaign of violence and intimidation against immigrants, LGBTQ communities, and its political opponents, especially on the left. The top leadership of the fascist Golden Dawn has now been tried and convicted, and on Wednesday were sentenced to prison. No fewer than 57 Golden Dawn defendants were convicted of murder, assault, weapons, possessions, and either running or participating in the criminal outfit. And the three-member tribunal of judges in charge of the case handed down 
lengthy sentences. We'll hear more about that. The party was found guilty of an attack on trade union members, attempted murder of a group of Egyptian fishermen, and most famously, the murder of anti-fascist rapper Pavlos Fissus. The court ruled that Golden Dawn lawmakers had operated a criminal organization under the guise of being a democratically elected party, and the neo-fascist group has been effectively outlawed or at least stopped in what has been called the largest trial of Nazis since Nuremberg. Well, we are very privileged to have one of the lawyers who pursued this case, and he joins us, Thanos Campayanis, with journalist and analyst Kevin Ovenden. Thanos Campayanis is a lawyer, a socialist and anti-fascist campaigner in Athens. He was one of the team representing the four Egyptian fishermen attacked by Golden Dawn, whose case is part of the basis of this historic trial that is finally concluding after five and a half years. And Kevin Ovenden has been on this show before. He's an author and journalist living in Athens who has written extensively on the far right, racism and fascism in Europe. And I want to welcome you both to Jacobin Radio. Let's just be... Thank you. And let's just begin. Uh, maybe you could give us a quick overview in a slightly uh, you know, more comprehensive way than what I just tried to do of what has happened. And it seems, let me just say a little bit more, it seems like Golden Dawn was vulnerable to the legal process, not because it made central to its awful political approach, the strategy of violent attacks, sometimes murder of its opponents, mostly on the left, but it's also been called a mafia-type organization as well as a fascist one. So when you give us this quick overview, I also want to hear about how you came up with the strategy of using a legal approach to defeat them. First of all, thanks for the invitation and thanks for a very comprehensive opening of the show because uh, you gave quite a lot of of crucial information about uh, the organization, the trial, the major attacks uh, that the organization uh, did against its uh, opponents. So uh, uh, thanks for that. It was uh, was very helpful. We are at the end of the trial. The trial has not ended yet because we're still waiting for the sentences and whether the sentences will be suspended. This is uh, the crucial issue right now, whether the leader of the organization will actually go to jail in the next few days, or we will need to wait for uh, the Court of Appeals for the second grade of the court, which will be many years ahead. So it is a very crucial decision what will happen that uh, we're still expecting from the court. So now you described the organization quite well because uh, you have a Nazi criminal organization. So, so we need to emphasize both words of this phrase. You have a Nazi organization an organization that masqueraded as a Greek nationalist organization, but we have had access to the personal computers of its leading cadre, and we now know that it is a national socialist organization. In the closed circle of its membership, they were giving oath to the Wehrmacht flag, to the flag of the German Reich back in the 30s and 40s. This is staggering for a society like the Greek society that has uh, experienced the German occupation, the Nazi occupation, back in the 40s. So we have videos uh, by the leaders of the organization saying that Golden Dawn is uh, the seed of the defeated army of 1945. We mean the German army, we mean the Nazi army. Of course, these things were not said publicly. Publicly, the organization was uh, using patriotic and nationalist rhetoric, but we now know what was happening in its core. 
But at the same time, we have a criminal organization. We have an organization that's uh, behind the legal political entity had a paramilitary mechanism, a mechanism of uh, battalion squads that perpetrated criminal acts. First of all, against migrants and against refugees, against the, the weakest in our society. But then when they felt strong, when they felt that they had power, that they were not being prosecuted by the state authorities, they started acting crimes against local people, against trade unionists, against uh, local anti-fascists, against youngsters, youth, people like Pablo Spisas, who was an anti-fascist rapper in his uh, area. So this was the, the court. The court was uh, an effort to prove that you have to do with a Nazi criminal organization. It is a historic victory that we have been able to prove that. It's really heartening, especially, you know, for our audience here in the United States, where we're kind of going into several steps back in terms of what our courts are doing. But I don't want to minimize that by talking about what, what's happening with us. But maybe you've just described very well, Thanasis, the um, Nazi background of this party. And in fact, I think I read somewhere that, that its main leader is a Holocaust denier. And you that, That's a detail. I do, I do not even say that because I take <laughs> that for granted. Take it for granted, right. That, that's for sure. And then, of course, you know, Greece has not only had uh, the experience of World War II, but also of the dictatorship from 1967 to 74, I think where you had the, the junta, which was, maybe we're not going to call it neo-fascist, but per perhaps we should. In any case, uh, since that time, it didn't seem to the rest of the world that Greece could fall to this kind of fascist activity. And in fact, when we saw the activities during the period of Syriza, and there was the rise of far-right populist demagogues all over the world, Greece stood out because it wasn't just a far-right nationalist demagogic party, but an actual Nazi party. So I think that's really important. And I, so I wanted to say, just to, to elaborate a little bit more on the sort of particularity of Golden Dawn in that respect. How does it relate to other organizations and other places that we're seeing in so much of the world today? It's true what you say, and you you spot really well the historic facts uh, back the you know the Nazi occupation, the junta, the dictatorship. Of course, Golden Dawn draws from these traditions. Let's say that it, it, it began as a tiny organization in the beginning of of the eighties. It really seemed irrelevant. It really seemed irrelevant with a magazine that had Hitler and Rudolf S in its front page. In the beginning of the 90s, they started a political turn, a turn outwards, which in reality meant that they started doing these attacks against anti-fascists, against socialists who were selling their literature and they were attacked by battalion squads of the organization. There was a very infamous attack in, back in 1998 against a young trade unionist, a student leader, who was also a member of, of a left organization. He was very happy to survive this attack against him by a squad of Golden Dawn. And we are now happy that he's one of the best historians that we have about the period of the Nazi occupation. So it seemed like a small and irrelevant organization until the beginning of the economic crisis in 2010. And then you have austerity, and then you have the economic crisis, but also the political crisis. And there I think that it is very important for, uh, for the people who listen to us to understand 
how important the role of state racism or racism against refugees and migrants has been to legitimize the um, rhetoric and the practice of Golden Dawn. Uh, so suddenly the things that Golden Dawn said had become mainstream. Uh, they became mainstream from the politics of the center, not from the politics of the margins. And uh, this has lots to do with the economic crisis and how the establishment uh, responded to the economic crisis because you had, you had hospitals closing. You had schools closing, and then you had politicians from the centre-left and from the centre-right accusing refugees and migrants and scapegoating people and saying that the reason why you don't have a hospital is because there are lots of foreigners who come and take the places in the hospital. The reason why your, your kid does not go to the kindergarten is because uh, there are kids of, of refugees and of migrants who go to the kindergarten. And this legitimized Golden Dawn. It's, it really authenticated it, and it made it a political force. And in 2012, you have this political earthquake. You have the rise of, of the left and of the radical left and of Syriza as a big political party, which, uh, you know, in the old days took something like 3 or 4%, and then it gets 25%, 27%. And at the same time, you have the rise of Golden Dawn. And as you very well spotted, you have the difference with Golden Dawn, the differentiation being a purely Nazi party, a party which did not try to hide itself, like you have uh, the case in uh, with the Le Pen party, with the Marine Le Pen party in France or with the IFT in Germany, where you have uh, parties that have tried to clear themselves from the fascist past from the worst part of, of the far right, you had a really unreconstructed Nazi party taking over this political space, the space of, uh, uh, of the far right. And there you have clearly what, what you can see is that how a, a modern Nazi party can take over that space, how you can have a legal political entity, a, a party that you can see in the news making a statement, and at the same time, members of these parties going out at night, stabbing foreigners, or uh, smashing the heads of trade unionists or of, uh, of anti-fascists. This was the unity of those two uh, strategies, uh, as you could, you could only find back in the 30s with the Hitler party, with the NSDAP, where you have the legal political party, the one that runs elections, runs electoral material, but at the same time, you have a paramilitary mechanism which is making the attacks. So you have a really deep dive to the 20s and 30s in uh, the Greek society. And I, I believe that uh, this is a paradigm that people really need to examine in the Greek society in uh, the last 10 years. There's so much there to ask you about. And then I do want to get into the how the trial came about. But before that, you know, you have pretty well explained, I think, the Nazis about the way that the ruling parties, let's say, tolerated or the state tolerated the existence of this far-right Nazi racist uh, entity party. But now it's become more vulnerable over the last five years. And so, and the establishment, it appears, is open to attacking the far-right. And then on the other hand, of course, you've shown how it was allowed to operate unhindered for such a long time. And as you've uh, very well explained, that it was acting as a goon squad, a thug, you know, that attacking trade unionists and immigrants and leftists and LGBTQ communities, putting people on hit lists, all sorts of actions. And so it seemed for the longest time that it was immune or, or maybe not. 
that's a good question to ask whether or not that there was impunity for racist attacks in Greece and that it was allowed to exist. And I think I saw in one account, they said that they allowed it to exist to sort of be a counterbalance to uh, such a, you know, large left in Greece. But, but let's go back and just ask it in this last period, why it's, why it was open to the, to the ability to attack it using the legal process. I will give you an example on what you just said about how this organization had a state of impunity in its criminal activity. And I will give you the example of the attack against the people that I represented in the trial, the the Egyptian fishermen. They went into the house. They found a poor Egyptian guy, a fisherman, uh, sleeping on his balcony and they, they, they found him sleeping and they started kicking him and uh, hitting him with buttons on his head while he was sleeping, just because of, of the color of his skin. And they were proud to say that they were Golden Dawn. They, went, they were even wearing T-shirts, writing Golden Dawn. They were local cadre of the local organization of Golden Dawn. And they did the attack after an actual announcement of the attack by the local MP of Golden Dawn. But... When they got luckily arrested and uh, they were brought into the uh, police headquarters for them to be photographed, inside the police, the policeman gave them the ability to change their T-shirts, to get the T-shirts out of uh, the the ones that were writing Golden Dawn and uh, wear new white T-shirts and then go to the district attorney and state prosecutor and say that uh, we're clean, we don't have any connection to any racist uh, activity. And they walked out free. Uh, they did not uh, even stay in uh, prison, not even for a day, whereas my clients stayed in hospital for weeks and could not eat solid food for months because his, uh, uh, his jaws were broken. So you understand, this is what I mean, state of impunity. I don't, I don't mean something, you know, general. I don't, I don't mean some, some general things that anti-fascists wrote in their material. I mean concrete examples of collaboration between people doing criminal acts like that and policemen. But after the uproar that was created, uh, after the the murder of Pavlos Fisas, there was an actual anti-fascist uprising. There were massive anti-fascist mobilizations because uh, it was so clear the, the complicity of not just Golden Dawn members, but also of the leadership of Golden Dawn in that murder, the state really felt uh, under pressure and the government felt under pressure that they should uh, press charges against uh, Golden Dawn. So this prosecution, this state prosecution against Golden Dawn was the result of the anti-fascist mobilization. It was the result of an anti-fascist and uh, an, a democratic uprising of uh, people saying that enough is enough. You need to press charges against these people. So this is how the trial started. And uh, it needed lots and lots of effort and lots and lots of anti-fascist activity to press the state again and again and again to uh, have these people convicted. Imagine that the state prosecutor during the trial proposed that they should be acquitted. It was the victim's It was uh, the lawyers of the victims and the side of the victims who put forward all the arguments on why uh, they should be convicted. And luckily, the the court accepted uh, unanimously that uh, these were all criminal acts perpetrated by Golden Dawn and that that, that Golden Dawn acted as a criminal organization. 
Can you just um, spell out just a little bit more, Thanasis, the when the attack on the Egyptian fishermen took place and whether or not that was the catalyst for taking them to trial? And then afterwards, was it the murder of, I forgot his name. Oh, just, thank you. Um, but maybe just give us a little timeline of how it came about and what your role was in it uh, in order to bring this to case. And I'm just, as you were speaking, I'm, I'm hoping that listeners will draw the parallels because we're seeing now, you know, police, at least in this country, acting often with impunity. And we're also seeing some collusion, as we saw in Kenosha, Wisconsin, between far-right organizations who are given a pass by the police. But I don't want to take away, as I said before, by making analogies that aren't exact. Uh, but So let's get to your timeline. Golden Dawn has been uh, perpetrating lots of attacks before they went into the parliament. But uh, from June, May, June 2012 to September 2013, you have 15 months of constant racist and fascist attacks. So the attack against Egyptian fishermen takes place on June uh, 2012. It is actually part of the electoral campaign of Golden Dawn. They are elected by doing this kind uh, of racist attacks, and they are selling to their audience that they can do them in a state of impunity. So this is what really strengthens them, the, the sense of uh, their audience that, uh, you know, the party that they are choosing ha- has that kind of, uh, of strength. So uh, this happens in June 2012, and, approximate, and, and, and unfortunately, there is no move by the state. There are demonstrations happening locally in Perama by anti-fascists and anti-racists, by the Egyptian community, by local people who react to these racist attacks, but still the state does not move. In uh, January 2013, we have a murder, not, not an attempted murder, but a murder of a young Pakistani guy who is going to a retail market. He's called Sarzat Lukman. He's going to a retail market, and they find him early, very early in the morning like three or four o'clock in the morning, and they stab him seven times. One stab is in in the heart. Two members of uh, Golden Dawn, they open up their places and they find material of Golden Dawn and they find buttons and and all the things that you find in in houses of, of members of Golden Dawn. But the reaction by the state is a complete state of impunity. They accept the reason that uh, the two members of Golden Dawn give, and they say that uh, uh, the state accepts their uh, their excuse, and they say that the reason why the stabbing took place was uh, because uh, the young Pakistani guy was blocking the road with his bike to the people coming behind him with, with their bicycle. And we needed to have a big legal campaign to convict those people and to convince a separate court that took place that this was a racist murder that this was uh, it was an em- emblematic racist murder. So we needed to reach on September 2013, when you have constant attacks, and at some point they try to change a level. They try to expand the people that they are attacking. They don't just attack anarchist squads. They don't just attack uh, uh, anti-fascists or foreigners. They make the attack against the Communist Party, against a big uh, political entity in the Greek political scene, and against trade unionists, against local anti-fascist youth, known people in their area, uh, like Pablo Fisas. And this is when you have the uprising against uh, both the fascists and the government, and the pressure on the government to stop the collusion 
of the state with the fascists and, and, and press the charges. This is when we create our initiative and we say that the anti-fascist movement needs to be part of that process. We say that we don't trust the institutions. We don't think that it will be a court decision that will stop fascism, but we, uh, at the same time, say that uh, we need to be present in this process. Uh, we need to have an independent access on the file. We need to have our own investigation. And this is what uh, we find our clients, our friends in the Egyptian community, who give us the leverage to be able to, to step on uh, through that case in the file to, to gain an independent access in the process. Uh, people need to know, the people who listen to us, that in the Greek system, the, state pro- the fight in a penal prosecution does not take place between the state prosecutor and the defendant. Ours is, uh, in, in the European system, the state prosecutor participates in the court, but he participates as, a, as an independent factor. He can even say that the defendant should be acquitted. So it's not a fight between the state prosecutor and the defendant. It is a fight between the victim and the defendant. The state prosecution participates in the, in the trial proposes what should be done, but in the end, it is the court that, that decides what should be done. So you have four factors. You have the court, you have the state prosecutor, you have the victims, and you have the defendants. So it was a fight between us and the defendants, with the state prosecution revealing itself at the end of the trial that they were in favor of the fascists, that they were in favor of the defendants. So in, in the end... The amazing thing is that the court sided with the victims. They sided with with the civil prosecution in that case. So it was it was a situation where we needed to be inside the court and have our institutional role pressing the charge, but at the same time we needed to be part of the anti-fascist movement outside of the court and uh, constantly trying to publicize the case, help people uh, come as witnesses, give them courage because. People were terrorized by the activity of uh, of Golden Dawn, organizing public meetings about what was happening inside the courtroom, and in the end having a huge anti-fascist demonstration of tens of, of thousands of people at the day that uh, the court uh, announced its uh, its uh, decision. It was really great listening to the voice of of tens of thousands of people who were outside of the of the courtroom when the court uh, issued its, um, its final uh, decision. I can imagine, Thanasis Kampanyanis, that you had no idea when you began this process that it would take this long or end this way, or perhaps you did, you know, have confidence in that strategy, but what a victory. No, no, we did not, we did not know that it would be that long. We thought that it would be, okay, one year or two, but we didn't uh, believe that it would be so prolonged and it would be such a commitment because uh, the, the thing is that we... For, for our clients, we worked pro bono. We did not take money from them. That was going to be a question of mine, how, how you yeah, managed it. Was, it was just Egyptian fishermen. They, they would not have a way to be present in a trial like that. They, they could not pay the money uh, for something was like this, that. Or the, or, really, the, or the family of Pavlos Fisas. Yeah. They were yeah. just a poor family, a poor Greek family. Or the, the trade unionists of, of Pame, who were just working class people in a poor area uh, outside Piraeus. Whereas in the other side, you had a political party. You had a political party that had MPs. Uh, the MPs had uh, legal advisors who were paid by the parliament 
So every month they were paid by money of the state by the state budget, by our taxes, actually. We were paying for the defense of, of Golden Dawn. So it was we really needed to work to change the relation of forces, which was really bad against the victims. The, the victims did not have any help, you know, by, by the state, any money given to them or anything. So we needed to offer our work to change the relation of forces and to make the victims have a voice inside the court, but also outside the, the court. So it was, it was a very long process, but it turned out well. I'm wondering if it could be a template in a way for how to deal with these organizations, you know, maybe in, in other countries as well. And, and also not just a template in terms of the strategy that was used, but also the mass mobilization that supported it. And I'm assuming that there must have been fundraisers, you know, to raise money to keep it going. And I guess a question was, did this trial just rivet the country for all of this time? Or was it, you know, was it in the forefront of news? No, it was not. It was that, 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 uh, that's the problem. That's, now, now it, it was in the front page of the Financial Times. Now, it, it was amazing. The amount of publicity, both internationally and nationally, was huge the last uh, few days. But we had uh, a state of silence of the big media for five years. The trial was going on, but it was invisible for the mainstream media. So we needed, and because in the beginning of the trial, we made the proposal that there should be a live streaming from inside the courtroom. So everyone should have you know, the right to see what is happening in the courtroom. But because the Greek law says that even if one defendant uh, declines that, if, if he rejects that, then uh, uh, this thing cannot be done. So, uh, uh, of course, the defense of Golden Dawn said that they did not want live streaming. They just wanted to, to have this trial completely out of the news in a situation of, of silence uh, and of darkness. So we needed to, at the same time, be present in the courtroom, but there were anti-fascist organizations and other organizations doing meetings outside the court on what is happening inside the court. So as lawyers, we had the task to go to uh, cities all over Greece and uh, to neighborhoods in Athens to inform people about what was happening inside the trial. What, uh, one thing that, uh, that the anti-fascist movement provided was uh, an organization that was called Golden Watch. And um, it was uh, a Twitter account where uh, you could have the live, uh, in live time, uh, what is happening inside the courtroom. So there was someone who was typing inside the courtroom what was taking place, and uh, it, was, uh, it was put at, at the Twitter account. So this was Golden Dawn Watch. So this was the way that we tried to break the, the absence of mainstream uh, media. And so we, we had constantly, we had made it to have constantly a minority of people, of course, but it was a crucial minority of people constantly watching the trial through these networks, through Twitter, through Facebook, through those meetings taking place. So we had that, we, we kept that on until the big moment of the trial, which was, uh, you know, the closing statements, which was uh, the announcement of, uh, of the court decision. And, and of course, now there is a, you know, a huge publicity around the result. 
There's one thing I want to, I'm going to ask Kevin several questions too, but I want to finally ask uh, uh, your opinion on this. I've noticed that in several of the accounts that I've seen in the press in both Britain and the United States and elsewhere, that they say that Golden Dawn is not only a Nazi or a neo-Nazi party, as they call it, but a criminal organization and has been compared to a mafia type organization. I wonder... Can you explain why it's being characterized that and how important is that in terms of the process, the legal process that's gone on? It is uh, well spotted. The reason why this is called a mafia organization is that because it is being prosecuted, it has been prosecuted with the clause in the penal code that prosecutes mafia type organizations. So the criminal organization, the criminal outfit clause in the penal code 187 is the one that has been used to uh, prosecute Golden Dawn. Of course, Golden Dawn had mafia-type aspects in its activity. The thing about the attack against the trade unionists of, uh, of PAME, the, co- the members of the Communist Party, was not just political and ideological. Or it also had to do with the bosses in the area wanting to uh, lower wages and the local union uh, not being willing to sign the lowering of the wages. So there has been a contact between the local bosses and Golden Dawn that Golden Dawn will uh, annihilate, will smash the heads of the trade unionists, not just collectively, but but physically, the heads of, uh, of the trade unionists, to give them that. So they created a new union, like a yellow union, which was a Golden Dawn union which uh, provided uh, bosses with people who were willing to to be paid for less, be taken uh, in work, uh, and they were members of Golden Dawn. So this is a mafia-type activity of uh, of the organization. Uh, You can understand that, but uh, Golden Dawn, in relation to its activity, could also be prosecuted as a terrorist organization. It was was a truly terrorist organization, I mean, in the sense that uh, it terrorized part of the population, it terrorized migrants, refugees, uh, it terrorized part of of its political and ideological opponents. Uh, This would have meant that it would have taken even heavier sentences, that it would be prosecuted even more heavily. But as I told you, the state prosecution was obliged, uh, the state was obliged to move against her. It did not move decisively against Golden Dawn. It did not use the totally heavy-handed way that it uses when it uh, moves against far-left uh, or anti-fascist collectivities and uh, so on. Uh, so this is why uh, 187 clause of the penal code was uh, chosen. This is really good. So, Kevin, I'm going to ask you to come in and then we'll, we'll continue with Athanasis as well. But you've written that and, and you covered it and, and one can look at your page on Facebook, but also in the Morning Star and other places. Um, you wrote that if the prosecution of these fascists had been left to the traditional parties, it would not have been carried through. And you repeatedly pointed to mass anger, keeping the pressure on. And we have witnessed huge demonstrations. In fact, they're they're just wonderful to look at these pictures of the streets being filled, uh, supporting the prosecution, at least in recent days, as as victory approached, perhaps. But can you describe how that played out? So the if you look at all of the political parties, the mainstream political parties uh, were prepared either openly uh, to collaborate with Golden Dawn in terms of the party of the right. And we should understand that the centre-right party in Greece has kind of three three elements, if you like. Conservative Republican element, you know, quite hard uh, nationalist, 
which is open to and always has been open to the far right, a kind of more neoliberal element and a more kind of centrist element. But the certainly the, the hard right of this party was in back channel communications with Golden Dawn, uh, uh, particularly after it got into Parliament in 2012 through to September 2013, October 2013, when the state had to um, had to move against it, albeit partially. And it's something that you mentioned in the introduction, that this back-channel communication was very much about a counterbalance against the rise of the left. And one important aspect of the rise of Golden Dawn is that the, the anti-leftism, vicious Cold War, red-baiting, Greek terms, uh, the politics of the civil war of the 1940s, this was very important to authenticating Golden Dawn because this was coming right from uh, the government, from the mainstream, uh, from the mainstream right. And what they were arguing was that there, was, there were two extremes in the political system. The rise of Syriza and the Communist Party and the anti-capitalist left and all of this craziness with the strikes and demonstrations and so on. That's the extreme, one part of the, of the anti-systemic process. And then we have the rise of the far right, of the Golden Dawn. And so therefore, we are the ones in the middle balancing between these two extremes. But of course, in balancing, they were using privately... Golden Dawn and its weight against the rise of the left. And they were using it against the centre-left inside of the parliament as well, because this was a coalition government led by the Conservative right, but with two uh, centre-left parties supporting it on austerity grounds. And they kept privately saying to the centre-left, if you don't go along with our right-wing proposals, then we've always got Golden Dawn to turn to. And so all of this throughout the process that Tenasis was describing of 15 months of accelerating attacks from 2012 into 2013, you also have at the top of the political system all of these different ways in which Golden Dawn is being authenticated. And the centre-left, Labour-type, social democratic parties are implicated in it, even though, of course, we know that Nazis will attack and aim to physically destroy all of the workers' movement, including uh, Labour-type parties. And so they were... In, implicated in it through the coalition uh, with the uh, mainstream right and through trying to hold all of this together and crucially to stop the rise of the left. And so what you saw in this period was that the mainstream social democratic figures and politicians were more concerned to destroy the rise of the radical left than they were to let that grow and destroy the far right. Well, that makes, you know, perfectly leads into the next question that I have, and that is the relationship of Golden Dawn to the broader far right in Greece. What will, of course, be the consequences that you can imagine now uh, for the vitality of the Greek right after this prosecution and this verdict? Golden Dawn grew from the 1980s into the 90s in, you might say, concentric circles. So the the tightest part of the concentric circle was the very hardcore neo-Nazis. They had a, a demonstration, a few dozen people, I think, in 1986, uh, over the death of Rudolf Hess. I mean, you're talking about a very small number of people doing a very, very crazy thing, it might seem. 
Then as they grew around that, they drew parts of what you might say is the, the far right or the hard nationalist right. And in Greece, that would be people who uh, look back to the time of the hunter of the military dictatorship that you mentioned earlier, Susie, which is not quite fascist, but an old-style military dictatorship with, of course, lots of repression and so on. So people of that kind of highly authoritarian right. People from the right of the mainstream right, that strand that I was uh, mentioning uh, earlier. So they sought to draw around them that and and voters of that uh, kind. People very reactionary, quite obscurantist and so on. And then from that, they sought to move more broadly, uh, again from the right, but then penetrating into working class voters more broadly, particularly unemployed, desperate young men as the as the austerity took off, who had absorbed at least a portion of the racist ideology that was being pumped out by the, uh, by the mainstream. So if you think of those three circles, that kind of explains... Golden Dawn's relationship to the uh, to the far right in Greece, which is when we say look back at the history, the history of the hunter, the history of the military occupation. Yes, there's a big history of the left and the left resistance, but there's also a big history of a highly authoritarian right. People who collaborated with the Nazis, people who supported the uh, hunter. There was never a, a big sanimento, a big a big cleansing of the Greek political system after the fall of the Hunter in 1974. Indeed, the New Democracy Party kind of scooped up a lot of the people who'd uh, supported that, as we've seen in other countries in Europe, in Spain, after the death of Franco and so on. So that's, um, you have this kind of different strands and uh, currents and a kind of morphing relationship on the uh, far right. I think the important thing about the, defeat of Golden Dawn and the destruction of Golden Dawn is it means that this particular model of the battalion squads and the electoral advance, which seems so attractive and was attracting far-right sympathisers across Europe, that model is not entirely off the agenda, but it's very, very much diminished now. So what we're seeing now is all sorts of attempts to form new Golden dawn light parties, uh, fascistic parties or uh, right-wing populist parties and so on. There's a kind of scramble to occupy that space, which, of course, is very dangerous because Golden Dawn itself picked up a lot of support out of the collapse of a previous uh, hard-right racist party called Laos in 2012. So that's something we have to be acutely aware of, but that the hard neo-Nazi option has been broken at least for now, which buys us time in dealing with a lot of the other things. It's a tremendous victory. And I have like two more questions. I'm really gracious for your patience in all of this. And that one is that uh, about immigration, because we've seen at the beginning of, let's say, the Syrian civil war and all of the refugees that poured out, uh, that Greece was very hospitable and seen as a model in some ways of generosity, even in the midst of its horrendous crisis and uh, in which the terms of the bailout was literally ripping the social fabric of Greece apart and immiserating the population. And yet there was generosity that we could look at. And now uh, we see once again that there are attacks on immigrants. And I just wonder 
you know, that has been the theme of the far right, not just in Europe, but all over, using the refugee crisis or immigrant crisis as the way to cast blame on the economic situation and everything else in the country. And I just wonder, was that something that Golden Dawn, because I know that the Nassis represented Egyptian fishermen who were, you know, immigrant workers. How successful were they in exploiting that and perhaps gaining more uh, support. As you rightly said, when about 900,000, a million refugees, largely from Syria, moved through Greece, heading towards Northern Europe, there was a major opinion poll, I think it was done by uh, Pew, which found that 85% of the Greek population believed that the government should help the refugees. In this is in conditions of austerity and crisis and so on. And I make that point because... There is a, often a myth, and it's certainly a myth in the European labour movement, that if you have immigration at the same time as you have austerity, the result can only be a rise of reaction and of racism. Well, at the point at which the refugees were moving in their biggest number through Greece and also into Germany, and the same was true in Germany and in Austria, there were huge welcoming committees of ordinary Viennese at the train station to help the refugees, and again in Munich, and again in Frankfurt, all the way through. The far right was not able to grow at that time, at the height of 2015 into 16, of this huge generosity of spirit in, in Greece and elsewhere in Europe. What they were able to do was when the European Union made its anti-refugee deal with Turkey, when Angela Merkel went from the Schaffendas we can handle this, we're a big country, we can accept these people, very, very warm, to then, six months later, we're closing the border. Uh, we're going to shoot dinghies, uh, boats in the uh, Aegean and turn them back towards Turkey. We're going to reimpose camps inside Greece, which had been closed down in the first uh, six months of 2015. There will be barbed wire borders between Austria and Hungary and so on. So when, from above, when they move to say the refugees are a problem. The refugees must be a problem if you've got to stop more coming in. This again authenticates the right. And if you look at uh, Austria, Germany, Greece, France, it's not in 2015 with the movement of the refugees that the far right are making advances. It's the middle of 2016 and after when all of the states have already moved against the refugees. And then the far right is simply saying, well, we'll just do it more militantly. We'll bring it, they're talking about it, we'll do it. They want to stop more coming in. We'll smash the camps. We'll smash the heads of the refugees. Last question for, for you both. And that is to sort of, let me just get your ideas, impressions on what you think the consequences of this incredible victory, historic victory will be for Greek politics more generally and, and how will it affect the bigger picture? And as I started at the very beginning saying Greece was kind of like a vanguard in a way or in the forefront of so many of these struggles. So how do you see this trial and this victory in the bigger picture? I believe that uh, there is a sense of confidence for people, for people of the left, for people of the anti-fascist movement. I was talking to a journalist this morning, going to the to the court, and she was telling me that the government, the right-wing government, is gaining out of that. It's not losing. It's because uh, 
everyone in the political system right now says uh, that is a victory for democracy. It is good that the Nazis were defeated and uh, so on. And I agree with that. I agree with the sense that, uh, of course, the political system tries to be part of the victory. Who doesn't want to be part of the victory? Uh, everyone. Now, you know, new, new democracy, there was a, from the court called uh, people from all the political parties. And all the political parties had a witness to give their view on Golden Dawn. And new democracy was the only party that did not come to the trial. They did not come to testify uh, when the battle was open. But now that the battle is won, of course, you know, the centre-right says that this is, uh, this is a, a big uh, victory. This is, uh, well, we know that this is uh, how things work. But I believe, and what I was telling this uh, friend, this journalist in the morning, that uh, there is something deeper happening and that our side is gaining confidence through this victory, that um, there has been new political identities and new political signs that have been uh, created through this battle. There is this figure, the, the mother of, of Pavlos Fisas, Magda Fisa, who has been very significant during this uh, trial. She's a very, a very ordinary woman. She's a woman, poor woman, uh, living in a working class area near Piraeus, unemployed, giving birth to her children. And she became not just an icon, but she became a fighter out of that battle. She really became a fighter in an, in, in an anti-fascist cause, in a, in a bigger cause. And people really, really identified with her. And this is uh, these new political signs have been have been created in the Greek society. Uh, these new political identities, people who were not part of politics, who were not part of the anti-fascist movement, identified with the anti-fascist movement. So I believe that this will have long-term repercussions in the future. You might not see them in the next week. I'm sure that we will see them next month, when on the 17th of November... There will be the big march, the big commemoration that every year takes place of the Polytechnic uprising, the uprising against the junta. I believe that it will be a very massive demonstration. And part of why this will be is uh, because people will feel really combative and uh, really confident after the result of the, of the Golden Dawn trial. So I believe that this, this has been a very significant victory that will have that will have political results in the future that we still cannot feel, cannot grasp, because uh, right now it is history in the writing. It is history happening right now. And I believe that it is one of the major victories uh, that we have been able to score. And Thanis uh, Campanianis, I can't thank you enough for your role in this and for spreading the optimism of the victory to all of us. Kevin, do you have any final words on the bigger picture? Only this, that what Thanasis describes in Greece, I think is important for everybody on both sides of the Atlantic. And I put it like this, that five years ago you were talking about Greece and we spoke together, I think it was five years ago, Susie, about the uh, Syriza victory and then the referendum and so on. Five years ago we had, five and a half years ago, we had Syriza in government, confrontation with the EU before the capitulation, what was about to become the election as the as leader of the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Bernie Sanders with his first run, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon making advances in France and nearly getting into the second round in 2017. And then you 
gone forward five years and it seems like one defeat after another. Syriza defeated or capitulated, Podemos in the Spanish state, Jeremy Corbyn is out, Bernie Sanders is out and is backing Joe Biden and so on. And five years ago, there might have been an atmosphere a little like-minded on the international left that were moving from one victory to another, at least in the uh, electoral sphere. Now I think it's the opposite and dangerous and are not justified, which is that we're moving only from one defeat to the other. And that the crises that we're sinking deeply into, the environmental crisis, the pandemic, the surging economic crisis, I think there's a, a little bit of defeatism around that the people who will benefit from that will only be the radical right, will only be the far right. And that's what we have to look forward to. Well, Greece in the last 10 days says that we can break the far right And in throwing back the far right, we can open the door again to a a renewed left radicalisation based upon these new forces coming in and the real struggles of of working people like Magda Fissan. I can't thank you both enough for joining us today with that wonderful description uh, and analysis of what has been going on in Greece for the last five and a half years and hope that your victory spreads to every corner of the planet. Thank you so much, Thanis Campayanis, who is one of the lawyers who pursued the case, and journalist analyst Kevin Ovenden. Thanks so much for joining us today. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. You know why you're on trial here? You all right? I was until I saw that. Martin's dead. Bobby's dead. Jesus is dead. They tried it peacefully. We gonna try something else. Rebels without a job. They're a threat to national security. This revolution, you may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Get out of the street! Get out of the street! When you came to Chicago, were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Netflix just premiered the new Aaron Sorkin film, Trial of the Chicago 7, with Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman. They considered it an awards contender and are promoting it heavily. And John Wiener has a book on the Chicago 7 trial called Conspiracy in the Streets, the Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago 7. On today's Jacobin Radio, John Wiener is joining us to talk about the new film and the actual history of the Chicago 8 trial. We'll note the significance of the film and this moment. After all, it's not often a major Hollywood film features Abby and Jerry and Bobby Seale and the great Shakespearean actor Sir Mark Rylance playing William Kunstler, as John has told me. Opening at the end of 1969, a politically charged year at the beginning of Nixon's presidency and at the height of the anti-war movement, the trial of the Chicago 7, which I always 
want to correct people and say, no, the trial of the Chicago Eight, and we'll get to that, brought together yippies, anti-war activists, and Black Panthers to face conspiracy charges following massive protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, protests which continue to have remarked contemporary resonance. The book combines an abridged transcript of the trial. The real transcript would run 22,000 pages with very astute commentary by John Wiener. And it brings to vivid life an extraordinary event which, like Woodstock, came to epitomize the late 1960s and the cause for free speech, the right to protest causes that are very much alive half a century later. And as John writes, at the end of the 60s, it seemed that all of the conflicts in America were distilled and then acted out in the courtroom of the Chicago conspiracy trial. So John Wiener, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Susie, it's great to be with you. Always. And I want to just let the listeners know, in case they don't, that you're not only an historian and a programmer, you're the contributing editor to The Nation and the host and producer of Start Making Sense, which is their weekly podcast, as well as the weekly Trump Watch on KPFK. And you're also an emeritus professor of U.S. history at UC Irvine and the author of a bunch of books, including Give Me Some Truth, Come Together, Historians in Trouble, and most recently, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, which really has set the country on fire, I have to say, with uh, all of the great attention the book is getting. But this book, Conspiracy in the Streets, the Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago 7, which you edited was published first in 2006, but now reissued as a kind of companion volume to the film and brought out to coincide with the release of this Aaron Sorkin film. And it provides the political background of this infamous trial, which I've been told is taught in law schools as a sort of one-on-one on what not to do in a trial, in a, how to conduct a trial. Of course, as those who will watch the film or other films or who were there at the time or who just read through the transcript in the book, you will know, we'll know that the trial was often theater. And the uh, witnesses, which I'll ask you to talk about, were amazing, but it was appropriate political theater for the time and must-see TV. For those of you who are listening and remember this, I remember it very well. The book and the film are riveting history. And for the generation in the streets around the world now, uh, especially here in the United States, the veterans of Occupy, the Sanders campaign, Black Lives Matter, and more, this is a necessary history. And it gives a feel for the 60s generation and perhaps a cautionary, too, about what constitutes effective movements. So, John, let's get into it. You write in the excellent introduction that at the end of the 60s, it seemed that all the conflicts in America were distilled and then acted out in this courtroom of the Chicago conspiracy trial. So let's begin with why this trial took place. Was it the case And you can answer this, that the newly elected Nixon and the right wing, especially Attorney General John Mitchell, along with, of course, J. Edgar Hoover, were hell-bent on turning the tide against the anti-war movement and the left through outright repression to scare people, but also by building a counter to them, what Nixon called the silent majority? Simple answer, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But let's go into really... Who were the defendants? How did they come together? How did the trial you know, happen? When did it happen? So this is all about 
the war in Vietnam and the anti-war movement. In 1968, which is when this story begins, the trial, in the trial, eight leaders of the anti-war movement and, and the Black Panthers were put on trial and charged with conspiracy to riot um, and interstate travel to riot. So all this goes back to what happened in August 1968 at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. The war was going strong. The anti-war candidates, Bobby Kennedy, had been assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in June in Los Angeles. Eugene McCarthy, the other anti-war Democratic candidate, didn't have enough support. So the Democrats were going to elect the vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who was sort of the continuation of the Democratic Party that had launched this war, that had escalated the war to the point where there were half a million American troops in Vietnam. We were all protesting. The convention was going to be the place where Humphrey was going to be renominated. Humphrey, by the way, had not run in a single primary. This is what it was like in 1968. He did not win a single primary vote, and yet he had enough convention delegates to get the nomination. So demonstrations were planned. Really, there were two different demonstrations, quite different demonstrations. There was the demonstration of the the mobilization to end the war in Vietnam, which was a mass protest organization headed by Rennie Davis with Dave Dellinger and Tom Hayden. And their plan was to bring 100,000 people to Chicago to protest. Then there was a second group that was planning a protest, the Yippies, the Youth International Party, headed by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. And their plan was to have what they called a festival of life in Grant Park that would confront the festival of death of the Democratic Party in the convention center and at the Hilton Hotel. These two groups had very different political strategies. Uh, The Yippies were basically kind of a media-oriented performance group, counterculture lifestyles, not terribly good at organizing. It wasn't clear that more than a few thousand people were going to come to the Festival of Life, but both groups applied for permits to meet in Grant Park, have rallies in Grant Park, and then march on the convention. The city turned down all permits. They reapplied. They appealed to the courts. They did everything they could to make this a legitimate, legal, permitted demonstration, and they were denied. And their view was, well, we're going to march anyway because we're against the war and we're going to confront the war makers. But partly because everyone knew, and the mayor of Chicago, Richard Daly was his name. A few of our listeners may remember that name. Mayor Daly said he was giving orders to shoot to maim or shoot to kill looters. So it was clear that this was going to be heavy weather. This was going to mean fighting the police. And instead of hundreds of thousands of people coming, really only about 10,000 people showed up. It was one of the one of the less successful attempts to mobilize. And in fact, just a year later, in October 69, half a million people attended protests for the what was called the moratorium of nationwide protests on October 15th, 1969. So, The demonstrations were held. The Festival of Life was held in the park. The police attacked everybody and beat everybody up. It was all shown on national TV with the kids chanting, the whole world is watching. Gigantic audience saw what the official investigation later termed a police riot. And that was pretty much the end of it. Humphrey lost the election narrowly. 
November 1968, Nixon is elected, takes office in January, and just three months later, indicts eight leaders of the left in America. And that's where the story of the trial begins. That brings so much to mind that on the one hand, Hubert Humphrey would be considered a radical today in many ways from the old farmer labor uh, party in your home state of Minnesota. But at the time, we saw him as, you know, just another yes man for the war and for LBJ's policy. And LBJ had declined to contest the election again making this, you know, primary incredibly important. And it's also, I think, just listening to you and remembering the time and remember that that was the time when conventions were not just spectacle. They actually had votes and you didn't really know what was going to happen going in uh, and what it was going to turn out to. So that was perhaps the last of those more exciting conventions, I would say. And I have to just say, personally, I was in Berkeley at the time and wanted to go to Chicago. Everybody wanted to go to Chicago, but how would we get there and where would we stay? You know, and of course, there's a famous scene in several of the movies about how they'll sleep in the park because there were no permits to or money to go anywhere else. But the repercussions of what was going on in Chicago, and I'm just, before we go back to the trial, I just want to say, I remember going down to Telegraph Avenue and walking with, say, five or six friends along, and we were stopped by the police who were about to arrest us for marching without a permit. (laughs) I remember saying, what, we don't have the right to assemble. We're just five people walking in the street. But that sort of kind of gives uh, you a sense of the tension at the time and the attitude because so many people were in the streets and there was so much attention riveted, not just on the convention and on the war. So you mentioned in your book, and you do a very good job of describing, and you just outlined it briefly, of who, you know, the different strands of the radical movement that were brought together and brought together in a way they didn't really know each other much until they got there. And you point to the cultural radicals, the black radicals, and the political radicals. So can you just, you know, do a little descriptor of each of those, and then we can go into, you know, the trial itself and its significance? Yeah, and the movie. There was also a movie about this, which we need to talk about. I'm excited to talk about the movie, which opened on Netflix, which is the reason we're still thinking about this today. The Nixon administration brought indictments against three different, really, sets of people who had very little to do with each other. First, there's Abby and Jerry and the Yippies and the people who were going to organize the Festival of Life. They were committed to a kind of media politics, spectacle, playfulness, counterculture, revolution for the hell of it, as Abby called it in one of his books. That's Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Then there's the MOB. These are the serious anti-war organizers who can get hundreds of thousands of people into the street, who include some very heroic people. I mean, Rennie Davis had already been to Vietnam, uh, which was a hard thing to do in 1967 in America. You know, you'd be accused of treason and aiding the enemy and so on. These were very talented, committed, brave people who saw themselves as serious politicos, and they kind of dismissed the yippies as kind of playful but useless and maybe a distraction. And then, for some reason, the Nixon administration also indicted Bobby Seale, the the chairman of the Black Panther Party, who had nothing to do with the demonstrations, had only been in Chicago for four hours, gave one speech in the afternoon at Grant Park, and then went back to New Haven, where he was uh, on trial 
the New Haven Panther trial was another very big event in our lives. Uh, Bobby Seale was accused of murdering. Another Panther was eventually found not guilty. But it seemed like they wanted Bobby Seale in the courtroom just to have sort of a scary black man in case the jury wasn't upset enough about Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, Dave Dellinger, and Jerry and Abby. So the fact that they were all indicted for conspiracy meant the government had to prove they had met together and planned to break the law, which was completely false and in the movie, they actually have the assistant prosecutor, uh, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, telling Attorney General John Mitchell, you know, these people didn't conspire. They barely knew each other. Uh, and the movie has John Mitchell telling the prosecutor, listen, you're hired here to win cases, not to argue with me. I think that's a bit fanciful, probably. I don't know of any historical documentation that the prosecution had doubts about this. But if there had not been a conspiracy charge. There would have had to been eight different trials, and clearly the Nixon administration was not up to that. They wanted one big show trial where they could convict all the leaders of the well-known prominent figures on the left in America, and that's what they got. I was going to wait till the sort of end, John, uh, to talk about the movie and bring up other points, but this seems like a good segue to talk a bit about it. This is not the first movie about it. There was a great film in 1987 or 88 that was based on verbatim transcripts and that had the real defendants standing behind the actors at various points in the film, lending it, you know, a lot of credence. And it was also, of course, based on the transcripts. There were some things that I thought in that film they did better than in this one. But this is a Sorkin film and it's incredibly well written and acted. It's got great characters but there's also, and we, sh- we can talk about it. First, what did you think of the film? The film seems to make the case to pick up on what you just said, that this was a vendetta, in a way, of John uh, Mitchell against Ramsey Clark, who had been the attorney general under LBJ and who was not yet, as you point out in your book, the radical that he became, but a kind of mainstream liberal, but who was very keen to sort of fight back and agree that the charges were specious. So maybe we should just pick up with that and maybe you can give the listeners your, I guess, your sort of perspective on the film and how close it tallies with what really happened. Yeah, well, there's a slight problem for me here, which is that the historian who's written a book about what really happened is put in the position of saying it's not accurate. And there's no more boring thing that a historian can say about a movie other than it's not accurate. We don't expect that Aaron Sorkin will make a documentary. Aaron Sorkin makes, you know, dramas about good guys and bad guys where people give uplifting speeches to each other. And in the end, we all feel better. And that's what this movie is. We shouldn't expect it to be a documentary. But on the other hand, everybody who sees this film wants to know, did that really happen? Was Bobby Seale really bound and gagged in the courtroom? Did the previous attorney general really show up in court and denounce the current attorney general? Yes, these things really happened. There were some other things that didn't really happen the way they were in the movie. Some important, some not so important. Really, the movie, the more I think about it, the movie sort of centers on Abby Hoffman, played, as you say, by Sasha Baron Cohen. He is kind of the charismatic center, the one that we want to spend time with, enjoy. He's funny, he's warm, he's passionate, and he's got a number of conflicts. He's in conflict with, first of all, the judge, who has his same name. 
And so he constantly baits the judge, and all of this really happened. He's also, of course, in conflict with the prosecution, not really as much as with the judge. And Aaron Sorkin wants to make the point, there's also a conflict within the defense. Here, Aaron Sorkin, I think, is a little bit off. He makes this, there indeed was a conflict between the politicos, Tom Hayden, and his associates, and Jerry and Abby. The way Aaron Sorkin writes this, Tom Hayden is the voice of sort of electoral politics. He says, you've got to win elections. If you can't win elections, nothing else matters. That's not what Tom Hayden was saying in 1968 and 1969. Tom Hayden was a revolutionary in 1968 and 69. It is true that in the 70s, he did become a Democrat. He ran for office. He got elected to the state legislature, but that was many years later. Really, it's Aaron Sorkin who is the voice of kind of liberal political elections democracy. And he kind of puts his ideas in Tom Hayden's mouth. And that's really unfair to Tom. And it's not an accurate account of what the debate was on the left at that time. It was not, should we vote for, in fact, it was for Hubert Humphrey. And it was a very hard case to convince people you should vote for the Democrats who were the war party at that time. This was about the kind of mass mobilization that would be explicitly about the war or the kind of playful, uh, delegitimizing, desanctifying of the court, the legal system, the government, in an effort to win young people and promote revolution for the hell of it. Aaron Sorkin enjoys Abby Hoffman as a character, but has Tom Hayden offer this critique, which is really not accurate, I have to say it. I was going to say, because it's too bad Tom's not with us still to be able to offer his perspective on the film, even though we've seen now that Rennie Davis has offered his. And we can talk a little bit about this. And I and I agree with you. I was kind of surprised at the end, you know, that they turned Tom into someone who said, literally, you have to vote. That's the most important thing. And in this, the final uh, statement that he makes, I think it's at that one, in the film, when he's incredibly eloquent and smart and everybody, nobody doubts that he and Rennie are, are brilliant, but and Abby is too. But Judge Hoffman says, young man, you're smart. You have a future in front of you. And he said, I don't want to be in your regiment, Julie. And that's soon a Julius Hoffman. I think that was Tom Hayden that said that. No, that was, that was Abby that said that. Abby Hoffman, yes. And you already said the play on names was a source of a lot of perhaps confusion. I doubt it, though, but for humor, certainly. And okay, so I wanted to ask you in terms of the film in reality, how you thought Sorkin dealt with Bobby Seale. He also introduced in Sitting Behind Bobby Seale, often was Fred Hampton, leader of the Black Panthers in Chicago, who was murdered in the middle of the night or assassinated by J. Edgar Hoover's agents. And and that is seen, it's brought in to be a kind of integral way in the film and the trial in a way that I don't necessarily remember it being exactly like that. Correct me if I'm wrong and just tell us what you think of the way Sorkin dealt with the issue of Bobby Seale. Well, it is sort of the dramatic center of the film that Bobby Seale demands his right to counsel. His lawyer, Charles Gary, was in the hospital in Oakland. We're told that many times. 
And the judge keeps saying, well, you have a lawyer right next to you. He's your lawyer. And he keeps saying, I have a right to pick my own lawyer and I'm not picking Kunstler. I, my lawyer is Charles Gary and he's not here. This is all correct. And he insisted so vehemently and so often that Judge Hoffman ordered him bound and gag. And that is portrayed very intensely and very dramatically. We see that. And it, the whole courtroom falls silent at this spectacle of a black man in chains in an American courtroom. It is horrifying. It is terrible. And the prosecution in the movie moves for a mistrial to separate Bobby Seale because this is The jury obviously can't stand this. Now, the real story is it took many days. Bobby Seale was bound and gagged and chained in the courtroom for four whole days. During those days, there was tumult, yelling. The other defendants were going crazy, saying you can't treat him this way, jumping out of their chairs. Judge Hoffman ordering the guards, the courtroom uh, guards to to force them back to their seats, dragging Bobby Seale in and out. Bobby Seale trying to shout through his gag that he demanded his constitutional right to represent himself. So this was much more protracted, much more disruptive, much more upsetting than shown on screen. On the other hand, Aaron Sarkin obviously made the calculation to leave us in silence and horror at this site and let that be the drama rather than have the actor's you know, express outrage. And this is Sorkin's decision. It was, it's why Sorkin, you know, is a big director and I'm not. And uh, it's a big difference. It's condensed. It's changed. But the essence of it is there. And I think the horror of it is there. I think you're right, John. I remember in the earlier film that I mentioned, uh, they showed that in a more protracted way. And you also got a sense that every time Bobby Seale tried to assert his right to defend himself, even through the gag, the security would come over and tighten it. And Rennie Davis mentions that you could see blood trickling you know, out of his mouth because it was so tight and he was clearly in a lot of pain. And this was horrendous symbolism in, in a U.S. trial to, you know, to muffle a black man and uh, not let him speak, not let him be represented by the, the lawyer of his choice or by himself. And so it really did add to the kind of horror of that trial. Well, I just want to let the listeners know I'm speaking with John Wiener and we're talking about both the film of the Chicago trial and John's book that was re-released just in time called Conspiracy in the Streets, the book issued by the New Press, edited by John Wiener, afterward by Tom Hayden, illustrations by Jules Pfeiffer, and now, of course, an extraordinary motion picture. And that's what it says on the book to uh, bring it up to date. In John's intro, you get a very good analysis, breakdown of what happens in the trial, and then it, he ends with these really terrific vignettes of each one of the defendants, which could even be updated slightly more. But John, there's just a couple of other key points I want to bring out about situating that trial in the context of what was happening in America. And that, you know, this move by the right, essentially, and by the Republicans and by the Nixon administration to either deflect from the horrors of the war by making this the primary uh, source of of attention, I think, failed. And that the other side of it is that, as we now know, uh, Nixon was trying to 
appeal to the silent majority. He had the Southern strategy. And that was something that we see now where there's singling out the white working class that was not necessarily involved in the anti-war movement and who were little involved and to kind of alienate them, especially by the cultural radicals, the very beginning of the culture war. So can you say something just a little about that attempt by the Republicans to do that and your sort of perception of whether it was successful or not? Well, the very fact that this is the only time the federal government has charged a group of radicals in our lifetime with conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot suggests that this was an attempt that failed. Uh, Partly, I think it failed not because it might not have worked with the, quote, silent majority, but because they got Judge Julius Hoffman and nobody realized what a impossible, nutty, unbearable uh, figure he was and how he would become the center of the trial and the news about the trial. You know, it was kind of, I guess, lucky for the defendants and lucky for us, even though at the time it seemed just horrible that American power was personified by this unlawful conduct of a trial. So he kind of played into the hands of the left in a way that was really unimaginable to us beforehand. Any other judge would have had plenty of repressive actions, but they wouldn't have looked so so grotesque. So, yes, they tried it. It didn't work. They've never tried it again. Amazing. Well, I think I wanted to add to that, John, because it's in your book when you talk about Ramsey Clark's critique of the legal strategy. He goes through all of the ways that that it was unsuccessful, but also in using this judge who was uh, temperamentally unsuited, you know, to what was going on. And just, you know, the string of contempt charges. And we should say that I'll let you say what happened in the trial. But I think the other part of it, which you've just alluded to, was that the right was unsuccessful. And they were unsuccessful, I would say, both in the courtroom and outside the courtroom at the time. And that's because... Everyone was against the war. By 1968-69, at the time that this was coming together, something like 75% of the population in the United States opposed the war. So it would be very difficult. You know, this gave the movement incredible influence. And perhaps you could think of it in terms of a divide and conquer and try to discredit the anti-war movement by showing that they're a bunch of pranksters. But it didn't seem to work. And I remember being glued every day to the new of the day's antics. And the defendants, as Rennie Davis reminds us now, would hold press conferences at lunch and spoke to crowds every night and that these were better attended with more press attention than anything the government was able to say at the time. So in any case, yes, let's do that and then talk a little bit about the weaknesses of those strands following it. Well, just one measure of what you're describing, the unpopularity of the war and the strength of the anti-war movement. I said only 10,000 people came to the demonstration at the Democratic National Committee in August of 1968. But by the next year, the National Mobilization Committee had a nationwide anti-war mobilization in October 1969, as the trial was going, that half a million people participated in. In November of 1969, they had a march on Washington, which had a quarter of a million people. It was the largest single demonstration in American history up to that time. That's where Give Peace a Chance was kind of premiered uh, as the anthem of the anti-war movement. So there were 
hundreds of thousands of people in the streets while the trial was going. And kind of so the spectacle of the irrationality and the repressiveness and the the absurdity of Judge Hoffman's courtroom contrasted with the hundreds of thousands in the streets saying stop the war now. It was pretty hard to miss the contrast there. John Wiener is a contributing editor to The Nation, the host and producer of Start Making Sense, their weekly podcast, an emeritus professor at UC Irvine. And this book is one that John published in 2006, and now it's reissued Conspiracy in the Streets, the Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago 7. John, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. It was a total pleasure. Always. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.